Just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, that it is always timeless and true, no matter what culture we're living in, time, age, it doesn't matter. Your word always rings true. Your word is always relevant. Your word always directly connects to our lives. We thank you that you speak through your word into our lives and that your word is living and active and it's powerful. It's not just words on a page, but it's transformation. It's your power going forth into our lives and going to work on them. Lord, we thank you. There is nothing like this that, that's in the world. It only comes from you. So Lord, I pray that as we uh, open your word together and we take a look at what you have for us today, I pray that lives would be changed, hearts would be changed, we would all grow closer to you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to family envy, it's as old as Cain and Abel. But history is rife with other examples of how envy changed world history especially as it pertains to, to rule over different kingdoms. We've all heard of the famous woman, Cleopatra, who Shakespeare based an entire play on. But I wonder how many of us are aware of the intriguing stories of how much envy played a role in her family or Cleopatra's rule, for that matter. You think people today behave badly. When Cleopatra's father died in 51 BC, 18-year-old Cleopatra and her 10-year-old younger brother, Ptolemy XIII, inherited the throne as co-rulers. However, only a few years later, her younger brother's advisors felt threatened by Cleopatra's political ambitions, so they conspired against her and she had to flee to Syria. And you would think the story might end there. That's, she just flew, flew, uh, fl uh, fled for safety and stayed there. But the story didn't end there. Within a year, Cleopatra returned with an army of mercenaries and fought a civil war against her brother. Meanwhile, powerful Roman leader Julius Caesar started his own war against Cleopatra's brother, and Cleopatra smuggled herself into Caesar's palace in order to plead her case for her rule over Egypt. When Julius Caesar finally beat Cleopatra's brother, he restored the throne to her. Long story short, she then allegedly had her other younger brother killed and installed her infant son as co-regent, thus solidifying her rule in Egypt, even after Caesar was assassinated in Rome. Following that, Cleopatra even had her sister, who had been exiled earlier, killed. Cleopatra would end up becoming entangled with Roman Mark Antony, which led to her downfall when Antony's rival Octavian defeated him and Cleopatra and set himself up as the first Roman emperor, changing his name to Caesar Augustus, the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. In this case, as well as numerous other examples in world history, envy of power played most, if not all, the role in family deaths and ended up changing world history. Because Cleopatra was entangled uh, with Mark Antony, who was defeated by who would rename himself Augustus, Egypt was fully brought under Roman rule and established Augustus's consolidation of power as emperor. 
That consolidation of power provided the foundation for every Roman emperor after him, which directly impacted the entire Western world and Christianity for hundreds of years after that. While the reference to familial envy in the second part of Jesus' parable on the prodigal son on the surface doesn't seem world-changing, in reality it changed everything about what people thought about what God's plan was for the world. In reality, this parable turned what everyone thought about what God was doing and how you got salvation on its head and revealed the true heart of God towards people. This world-changing truth then changes our lives, our families, and even the world. Last week we talked about, we covered the first part of the very famous parable often entitled The Prodigal Son. In it, a father has two sons. The younger son demanded his inheritance early, which was essentially saying to his dad, I wish you were dead, and took off. Often another area, that younger son blew all his inherited share of money on worldly desires. Famine hit that area, and that son now broke had absolutely nothing. He felt he needed to sell himself into slavery to even get something to eat. However, even in that horrific position, which he thought was his only hope, he still didn't have anything to eat. And so finally, he came to his senses and said, Hey, even the servants my father has hired have plenty to eat. I'm going to go, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to ask him to take me back as a servant, not as a son. So that man left where he was and started walking back home. Finally, he arrived at the outskirts of his father's farm. Remember where his dad was that whole time? He was watching, right? He was at the top of the hill where he had been every day since his son left, waiting and watching for that son's return. And when he finally saw what he had been watching for every day for a long time, that father broke all the cultural customs and ran towards his son. He didn't want another second to go by where he wasn't as close as he could be to that long-lost son. He didn't care how it was seen culturally, and he certainly didn't care what everyone else in his household who knew how much his son had sinned against him and disrespected and shamed him thought of him. His love for his son was greater than anyone else thought of him. And when the two were reunited, the father threw his arms around his son while that son reiterated his repentance for what he had done. That repentance was key. It went hand in hand with his father's love for him. See, our father will love us, but we also have to repent of our sinful behaviors and lifestyles. When we left this family last week, the father was throwing a huge party for his son's return. If you, met, if you missed that message about the return of the long-lost son from last week, that is up on our website, podcast platforms, and social media. What we're focusing on today is the response of the other son that had stayed back on the farm this whole time. According to one biblical scholar, the fattened calf, which the father had prepared for the return of his younger son, was enough to feed an entire village. It wasn't just for that family. It was enough to feed an entire village. So not only did this father prepare a feast in celebration of his son's return, but he invited the entire rest of the village to join them. This is exactly what the shepherd and the woman do at the end of the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. 
all three of these characters throw a party and they invite a bunch of people to celebrate the saving of one more soul. When a soul finally recognizes their need for Jesus, his salvation, and the fact that his death and resurrection are the only thing that makes it possible to come to God in repentance and receive the promise of eternal life spent with him, all of heaven erupts into one big party for that soul coming to salvation. That's how much God loves you and wants you to put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for your salvation. Those sitting around Jesus telling these parables, those who continually broke God's standards and the Jewish law and didn't care and had been labeled and written off as sinners and hopeless by the religious leaders, they needed to hear that. They needed to hear how much God loved them. It was never too late for any one of them to repent of their sin. As we're all sinners and come to Jesus for, the, for their salvation of their sins, uh, for their souls. And maybe someone here watching online later needs to hear that as well. God is watching and waiting, just as the Father in this parable was, for you to see your need for Jesus and to come to him. And at the same time, what's he doing? He's running towards you. No amount of sin against him changes how far he will run to you. Turn in repentance to his love today. But there's another group of people in Jesus' presence as he's giving this parable. And these are the ones represented by the third character in this story, the older son. And that's where we pick back up in this morning's parable. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Luke chapter 15. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to Luke chapter 15, or you can look it up on your uh, Bible uh, smartphone app. Uh, Luke chapter 15, we're going to pick up in verse 25. And we read, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Remember the whole village being invited to his father's house to celebrate the return of his brother? That's all the noise this older brother is hearing as he's getting closer to home from being out in the fields all day. So, verse 26, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Notice that he, doesn't, that he doesn't go and see what's going on. He sends a servant to go do it for him. See, he's the older brother. He's the one that's inheriting the, the, most of the inheritance. He should know what's going on in his father's household, but he doesn't. And so instead of finding out himself, he goes and gets a servant to go find out and come, and come tell him. It goes to show just how much this guy thought of himself. He already lived as the head of the household, and the irony of that pride was that he had no clue what was going on in that household. The servant responds with this, and he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Now notice how the servant says this. We can imagine the servant saying this with positivity, even if he didn't agree with what his employer was doing. He didn't add good for nothing to the son, or even though he blew all his inheritance as we expected him to at the end of it, he doesn't add any of this. The servant, in making the statement in a positive tone, may have even expected the same positive response from the older brother. But instead, the very opposite response is given in verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. The brother's envy for the treatment his sinful brother was getting from their father can't be contained. 
it not only comes out in the form of anger, but he digs his heels in. It's a staunch refusal to even enter the party. So let's explore the meaning of this a little bit, the, the interpretation of this parable. Firstly, like I briefly mentioned last week, in every parable that Jesus has given that we've covered so far, what does a banquet represent? The coming and future kingdom of Jesus, right? And, and usually it's the future and coming millennial kingdom of Jesus on earth. But in order to be a part of that kingdom, along with the future eternal kingdom, one needs to repent to become a part of Jesus' spiritual kingdom in the here and now. Repentance of our sin and recognizing Jesus as our Savior from that sin and the King over the rest of our lives is the entrance into Jesus' kingdom. That's it. There's no amount of prayers that need to be said or good deeds to be done. It's repentance and simple faith in what Jesus' death and resurrection offers to us in adoption into God's family. And who is at this party? That sinful son who had repented. Who isn't at the party? The older son. Whose fault is that? His own fault. His fault his and his alone. He's the one who's refusing to enter the kingdom. The older brother obviously is meant to represent the religious leaders who are gathered around Jesus while he's telling the story. Those who the rest of society and the religious leaders uh, were, were more so the side audience, those who the, the religious leaders labeled as sinners. The main ones Jesus was directing all three of these parables at, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, were the religious leaders, the legalistic Pharisees, and the scribes of the law. The first two parables focused on the celebration of lost souls and why there was no excuse for the religious leaders to go after those lost souls. So why weren't they doing it? This third parable directly pointed out to the religious leaders their own envy and what that envy will eventually lead to if not repented of. See, the problem was that the religious leaders saw no need for repentance. That was the biggest problem in all of this. They saw no need for themselves to repent. They thought they could work to, uh, well enough to be on God's good side to follow the rules well enough, and to do enough good things. They saw no need to repent of their inherent sinfulness, just so they could maybe make up enough for it. But instead of seeing their own need for repentance, like those they labeled sinners did, they got angry that those sinners were not only invited to the party, but what else were they? They were the honorees of that party. That's why they got so angry. The Pharisees were not grateful for these people being able to become a part of God's kingdom because they thought they were the only ones good enough to get in. And because of that, that will be their downfall, Jesus is explaining. Their refusal to want to be a part of a kingdom that allows those they only saw as miscreants to be a, the focus of it would be the final banishment of them ever being a part of it. That's huge. Jesus is telling them that even though they thought they were the only ones worthy of the kingdom of God, they would be the only ones excluded from it. And it wouldn't be God's fault. It would be their own fault because they're the ones who continually refuse to want to be a part of it. 
Their pride blinded them from the truth of the only way that one could even enter the kingdom of God. So even when the father comes out to plead with the older brother, he continually refuses, verses 28 through 30. Again, but he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Once again, like we talked about last week, in how the father dishonored himself by hiking up his tunic and running towards his son, this same father dishonors himself by trying to plead with his older son. This older son, even though he was claiming his younger brother was the one who had sinned against and shamed their father, was also sinning against and shaming his father by forcing the patriarch to plead with him to join the family celebration. And yet the father did not care what anyone else thought of him in still pleading with this obstinate and disrespectful son to join the banquet. What this showed by Jesus including this small detail was that God was still not even giving up on the Pharisees. You see that? He still wasn't even giving up on the Pharisees. As one biblical scholar pointed out, it was in direct connection to what the Apostle Peter says. When Peter writes, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. God had not turned his back on the Pharisees, even though the Pharisees had turned their backs on those they were supposed to be teaching God's word. But even then, God was still pleading with them to repent and become a part of his kingdom. Again, in the verses we just read, we see the stubbornness of the Pharisees' hearts. Even after God the Father is pleading with them to join his kingdom in the only true way, they still retort with why what he's done is unfair. In the Pharisees' eyes, this unfairness is that they've sought to do everything right according to the Jewish law. They've made the sacrifices to do all the right religious things. And so they should be the only ones who get to be a part of God's kingdom. But now here come all these sinners who haven't wanted anything to do with God or his standards their entire lives. And now this guy named Jesus says they can also be a part of God's kingdom simply if they turn from their sinful lives in repentance and, and turn towards God? Uh-uh. Not happening. And not only that, but those filthy Gentiles could not only become a part of God's kingdom if they do the same. Not only the sinful Jewish people, but those filthy Gentiles can now become a part of God's kingdom. What in the world is going on? This just simply was not fair, nor was it right in their eyes. But I think all of us sitting here today or watching online later can say, thank God that he does not act according to man's version of fairness. Right? Amen? Or else none of us would have any hope. 
In fact, that's exactly how the Apostle Paul describes God's blueprint for the one way to be able to restore to him and go to heaven. He says, so where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. See, the way to God and salvation through Jesus is purposely designed to not make any sense to the world, especially to the most brilliant minds of this world. You've heard me say this multiple times before, but when the most brilliant minds of the world claim to be atheists and say there's no scientific or philosophical proof for even the very existence of God, that should not surprise us. It was purposely designed to not only come from God opening our eyes and to look like pure nonsense to anyone who refuses to see it. That's how it was purposely designed. So the next time somebody who's this, this very famous or brilliant scientist says, there's no proof of God, I'm an atheist, you shouldn't believe in God either, that shouldn't surprise us. We should say, mm-hmm, yep, there's another one. Because it was purposely designed to be that way. It was purposely designed to look like absolute foolishness and nonsense if God has not opened your eyes to it. Unfortunately, there are other forms of unfairness that humans use to deny the existence of God or refuse to believe in Jesus for their salvation. They make statements like, what kind of loving God would allow, allow the evil in this world to happen? You've heard that before, right? Or, it's unfair that there's only one way to heaven. That doesn't make sense. And when we flip those questions, and we look at them from the other side, the biblical way, we're actually left asking the questions, why does God have any mercy on anyone in this evil world? And why did God love us so much that he made a way, especially an excruciatingly painful way, through Jesus, just so I could be restored to him and have the gift of eternal life in the first place at all? Those are the questions we really should be asking. It's God's mercy and it's God's love that we should be focused on, not what we think in our finite human understanding is fair or not fair. It's the Pharisees' finite understanding that fuels their refusal to give in to a God who forgives and allows people who have sinned so atrociously against him into his kingdom. How dare you? Jesus is one with the Father, and therefore his representative tries to explain to them the truth. In the last part of this parable, the Father tries to, explaining, tries to explain to his older son what his focus should really be on. The older son's focus, and therefore the Pharisee's focus, was how unfair it was that the younger son should be welcomed back at all, much less with this giant party. But his father responds with this, verses 31 through 32. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Once again, notice how the father says this. He doesn't berate his older son, just like he didn't berate his younger son upon that son's return. He responds with love. 
He says, son, you just don't understand. You've been with me all this time. And so really, you should understand who I am by this point. I don't know why you think this is so unfair. You've lived with me your entire life. You should understand that you have been able to enjoy all the blessings of being a part of my family and household all this time. Instead of being angry at the one you've labeled as unworthy to being welcomed into this family, you should be rejoicing that they also can enjoy the same blessings as being a part of my family as you've enjoyed all this time. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the Jewish leaders had the blessing of knowing what was in the scriptures and being the keepers and protectors of it. That position should have brought them to the knowledge that God's Messiah was coming. That knowledge should have provided clues about who he would be like and that he would bring salvation to all kinds of people, including sinners and Gentiles. They should have been the first ones into God's kingdom, recognizing Jesus as that Messiah and welcoming those he welcomed into God's kingdom. They should have been the first ones there with the tambourines. That's why the father said to the older son, you've been with me all this time and all I have is yours. Jesus came to his own people first. And the leaders of his own people should have been the first ones to receive the blessings of recognizing him as the Messiah. Because they're the ones who knew all the scriptures. But instead, the pride of these leaders and the belief that the only way they were good enough to enter God's kingdom was to do all these good things and to do them properly. It blinded them to what God was really doing and the hope for the entire world. It blinded them to see who God really was. It blinded them to see how sinful they really were. It blinded them what God's plan for the world actually was. As Jesus wrapped up this parable with, instead the Pharisees should have taken the focus off of themselves and what they thought was fair and completely shifted it to rejoicing that God was adding all different kinds of people, especially those who everyone thought were hopeless, to his family and therefore his kingdom. As one biblical scholar noted, what's fascinating about this parable is that Jesus leaves it open-ended. Jesus doesn't reveal what the older brother ends up doing after the father pleads with him. And there's a very powerful point to that. It's an invitation. At that point, Jesus is giving an invitation to the religious leaders that he's surrounded by to join with everyone else, especially the sinners, especially those Gentiles, in celebration that God was saving souls with the same repentance that granted those sinners entrance into that kingdom. That same open-ended invitation is given to us today. What will your response to God's call to repentance in your life be? Will your life simply go on the way it's always gone, driven by your finite understanding of the world around you and motivated by what you think is fair or unfair? Or like I opened up our message time with today, will your response be world-changing, both for your personal world and even the entire world? 
Like I mentioned in our Easter Sunday message, instead of railing against the seeming unfairness of not every road leading to heaven, we should be grateful that God provided a way at all for restoration to him by way of the death and resurrection of Jesus. God never stopped loving us, just like the father in this parable of the prodigal son never stopped loving his rebellious son. The bad news is that we're all sinners. We've all been born into our sinfulness. And before anyone balks at that, we affirm that sinfulness every day with the choices we make. The fitting and fair payment for our sin and thinking we could live our lives without God was the losing of that life and the permanent banishment from God's presence to a place called hell. But the good news is that God is a God of love and redemption. That fact is our only hope. That God is a God of love and redemption. That is our only hope. God is a God of redemption. And so even though our sin created a separation between us and most holy God, God stepped up and made a way for us to be restored to him. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, came to earth and was named Jesus because as the announcing angel told his earthly father, he would save his people from their sins. That was always his purpose. Because the payment for sin was always death, one who was God and therefore perfect in every way had to pay that price on our behalf. It was impossible for us to take care of that ourselves. And no amount of good thing or number of rules we follow can make up for that. Because it doesn't take care of the sin problem. That was the Pharisees' problem. We have to recognize that the perfect person, Jesus, took our place in death to pay for the sin that we had no hope of paying for. When we come to God and make the conscious decision that we're done running away from Him, and we recognize that our sin separates us from Him, and the only way of overcoming that is taking Jesus' sacrifice for our own, repenting of the sinful way we've been living our life by, and making Him as King over the rest of our lives, God promises that we instantly get welcomed into His family with open arms and the hope of an eternity spent with Him. But that's the only way. That's it. There's no other way. The only way is through Jesus and repentance. Jesus is very clear that there is no other way but through him in John 14, 6. And since God is a God of redemption, when we come to that place of repentance and surrender of our lives to God through Jesus, he instantly starts to go to work on our lives. He starts making every area of our lives more like Jesus. Our whole world starts to change the way we handle different situations, and the way we look at the whole world. Instead of looking at the world through fear's eyes, we start to look at it through the eyes of faith that God, our perfect Father, has his perfect plan. And even if we don't fully understand it now, we know the one who does and loves us immensely. Instead of responding in frustration and anger to different situations, we are filled with the peace that can only come from God. Instead of trying to force different life scenarios to happen, either based on what we think will make us happy or how we think we can be provided for, we are free to trust that our Father knows our every need and will provide for that every need in His timing. Instead of fighting our temptations, addictions, and spiritual battles on our own failing strength, we are transformed by the Holy Spirit and filled with His power to fight those battles. 
And instead of fearing death, our minds are changed by God to be filled with the assurance and hope that his timing to call us home is perfect, where we spend our eternity under his protection, care, and love. See, our whole world is changed. Our whole world is transformed. And as our worlds are transformed, think of the profound impact that will have on this world. The more we grow in our faith in Jesus and the more God stretches our faith and reveals more and more of who he is as the king of the universe and the king of our lives, the more change we'll see in our lives and in our families. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that will change our worlds. And Jesus is the only one who will change the entire world. Be a part of his kingdom today. It's coming. Are you going to be a part of it or not? And share this good news with one more person so they too can come in repentance to Jesus and one more soul can be saved, thus igniting another party in heaven. Let God change your world, your family's world, and through that impact this entire world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the second part of this very famous parable of the prodigal son. A lot of times we end with the long lost son coming back to his father and we forget about the impact and the meaning of the son that was with the father the whole time but continually rejects entering the banquet the kingdom lord i pray that if there's anybody here who's been running away from god for years i pray that they'd stop and they turn around and they'd start walking towards god in repentance only through the death and resurrection that is offered to us and Lord, if, if there's somebody who was a part of the family and walked away, I pray that you bring them back too in repentance. And if there's those of us who have spent our entire lives, or most of them with Jesus, decades of our lives walking with him, I pray that we would remember it's only because of his mercy and love that we're there in the first place. And we would be so grateful for that. And we'd go out and seek to find one more person to be added to that family. I pray as we go out from this place today, out into this world, this hopeless and dark and hurting world, I pray that we would do so with the power that Jesus offers to us, the power of the Holy Spirit, as he's changing our whole, our whole outlook, our whole worlds. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.